0: section fifteen of the lives of the queens of england volume nine by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain mary beatrice of modena chapter five part one the birth of the second son of mary beatrice was destined to take place at the inauspicious period when james had given irreparable offence to the nation By committing the Archbishop of Canterbury and six bishops to the tower. This unprecedented act of folly was perpetrated on the 8th of June. The indignation it excited pervaded all ranks of the people and extended even within the guarded region of the court. The queen was restless and anxious all the next day and expressed an impatient desire for the completion of the arrangements that were making for her accommodation at St. James's Palace, she sent several times in the course of that day to hurry the workmen there and on being told that it would be impossible for them to finish in time to put her bed up that night she gave way to petulance and said i mean to lie in at st james's to-night if i lie on the boards kings and queens are of course liable to the same infirmities of temper as their subjects but it behooves them to impose a stricter restraint on their natural emotions surrounded as they are at all times by watchful observers if not as was the case with james the second and his consort by invidious spies and traitors it was by no means wonderful however that mary beatrice under these circumstances should be desirous of escaping from the political excitement and publicity of whitehall to her old familiar palace where she had formerly tasted some of the comforts and repose of domestic life it was not till a late hour on the saturday night that the arrangements there were completed when this was announced to her majesty she was engaged at cards the solemn etiquettes which in that age pervaded the most frivolous amusements of the court forbade her to break up the table till the game was decided which was not until eleven o'clock after this she was carried in her sedan chair attended by her servants and preceded by her ladies through the park to st james's palace her chamberlain, Lord Godolphin, walking by the side of her chair. The king accompanied his consort and passed the night in her apartment. The next morning, he rose between seven and eight and went to his own side of the palace. About a quarter of an hour after, the queen sent for him in great haste and requested to have every one summoned whom he wished to be witnesses of the birth of their child. It was Trinity Sunday, June 10th. The Protestant ladies that belonged to the court, says burnet were all gone to church before the news was let go abroad which was certainly true but this unfaithful chronicler suppresses the fact that they were all speedily sent for out of church by her majesty's command the first person who obeyed the summons was mrs margaret dawson one of her bedchamber women formerly in the household of anne hyde duchess of york she had been present at the births of all the king's children including the princess anne of denmark she found the queen all alone sitting on a tabouret at her bed's head trembling and in some depression of spirits the queen requested the pallet which was in the next room to be got ready but the quilts not being aired mrs dawson persuaded her not to use it but to go into her own bed again from which she and the king had just risen That bed was then made ready for her majesty, who was very chilly, and wished it to be warmed. Accordingly, a warming pan full of hot coals was brought into the chamber, with which the bed was warmed, previously to the queen's entering it. From this circumstance, simple as it was, but unusual, the absurd tale was fabricated that a spurious child was introduced into the queen's bed. Mrs. Dawson afterwards deposed on oath, that she saw the fire in the warming pan when it was brought into her majesty's chamber the time being then about eight o'clock and the birth of the prince did not take place until ten Anne, countess of sunderland the wife of james's treacherous minister therefore no very favourable witness gave the following statement as to the birth of the prince that she went to james's chapel at eight o'clock in the morning on the trinity sunday with the intention of taking the sacrament but in the beginning of the communion service the man who had the care of the chapel came to her and told her she must come to the queen the countess said she would as soon as the prayers were over but very soon after another messenger came up to the rails of the altar and told her that the queen was in labor and she must come to her majesty without delay on which she went directly to the chamber of her royal mistress as soon as the queen saw her she said that she believed her hour was come. By this time, continues Lady Sunderland, the bed was warmed and the queen went into bed. Here, then, is a most important testimony in confirmation as to the time when the said warming pan was used, which was before the queen entered the bed at all. After her majesty was in bed, the king came in, and she asked him if he had sent for the queen dowager. He replied, I have sent for everybody and so indeed it seemed for besides the queen dowager and her ladies the ladies of the queen's household the state officers of the palace several of the royal physicians and the usual professional attendants there were eighteen members of the privy council who stood at the foot of the bed even the princess anne in her coarse, cruel letters to her sister on this subject acknowledges that the queen was much distressed by the presence of so many men especially by that of the lord chancellor jeffreys the queen at the birth of her last child had entreated that no one should proclaim whether it were boy or girl lest the pleasure on the one hand or the disappointment on the other should overpower her and this command was repeated now about ten o'clock her majesty gave birth to a son and forgetting every other feeling in the tender instinct of maternity exclaimed apprehensively i don't hear the child cry The next moment, the prince certified his existence by making his voice heard in good earnest. Lady Sunderland had previously engaged the midwife to give her intimation if it were a boy by pulling her dress, and she signified the same to the king by touching her forehead, which they had both agreed should be the token. Not satisfied with this telegraphic intelligence, the king eagerly cried out, what is it? What your majesty desires, replied the nurse she was about to carry the infant into the inner room when the king stopped her and said to the gentlemen of the privy council you are witnesses that a child is born and bade them follow and see what it was so crowded was the queen's bedroom that the earl of feversham had some trouble in forcing a passage through the noble mob of witnesses as he preceded mrs dela baby and her infant charge crying room for the prince The royal infant was seen by three of the Protestant ladies near her majesty's bed before he was carried into the inner chamber. One of these was the noble-minded and virtuous Susanna, Lady Belasus, who might herself have been Queen of England at that moment, instead of Mary d'Este, if she had not preferred her religion to the prospect of sharing a crown, and at the same time loved James too sincerely to consent to injure his interests, when Duke of York, by becoming his wife. After King James had spoken a few tender words to his consort, he said, Pray my lords, come and see the child. The witnesses then followed the king into the inner room, where the royal infant was shown, and all present, saw it was a prince and newly born. Lady Belasis said, she thought it looked black in the face. A convulsion fit, such as had proven fatal to the other children of Mary Beatrice, was at first apprehended but after the prince was dressed he looked very fresh and well and the king said nothing was the matter with the child mrs danvers who had been the nurse of the princess isabella and was then in the service of the princess anne came to see the infant and said she was glad to see the same marks upon his eyes as the queen's other children when they were born in the overflowing transport of his joy for the birth of a living son and the safety of his queen james bestowed the accolade of knighthood on her physician dr walgrave by her bedside as a token of his grateful sense of the care and skill manifested by him during the preceding months of the anxious attendance upon her majesty whose symptoms had occasionally been of an alarming character the birth of a prince of wales was announced to the metropolis with signal marks of triumph by the king's command the tower guns fired an extraordinary number of salutes the bells rang peals of deceitful joy the poor were feasted and received alms and all loyal lieges throughout the realm were enjoined to unite in thanksgivings and festivity the wisest way in which the king could have celebrated this event would have been by a general act of grace and the liberation of the prelates in the tower but his obduracy on that point hurried on the accomplishment of his evil destiny including that of his faithful wife and innocent son by the imprisonment of the virtuous conscientious sancroft he had deprived himself of a witness of the birth of the prince whose testimony no member of the church of england could have resisted Barillon, the French ambassador, announced the birth of the royal infant to Louis the Fourteenth in these words. The Queen of England has given birth, an hour since, to a prince, who is doing very well. He is very well formed and of the full size. According to this minister, the joy of the king was unbounded. James's brother-in-law, the Earl of Clarendon, gives the following lively little account of this event in his diary of June the 10th in the morning i was at st james's church where i observed great whispering but could not learn what the matter was as i was going home my page told me the queen was brought to bed of a son i went presently to st james's whither the court removed out the last night and word was brought me it was true her majesty was delivered about ten this morning as soon as i had dined i went to court and found the king shaving i kissed his hand and wished him joy he said the queen was so quick in her labor, and he had had so much company, that he had not time to dress himself till now. He bade me go and see the prince. I went into the room, which had been formerly the Duchess's private bedchamber, and there my lady Powis, who was made governess, showed me the prince. He was asleep in his cradle, and a very fine child to look upon. On the same day, the Marchioness of Powis was sworn as state governess, and lady strickland wife of sir thomas strickland of Sizer, as sub governess to the new-born heir of england there were also two nurses madame libady and mrs royer four rockers a laundress and semtress and two pages of the back stairs who were all sworn into their offices the same night the numerous nursery establishment and indeed the whole palace were thrown into a state of dismay by the alarming illness of the precious babe The king was called out of his bed at three o'clock in the morning, and the royal physicians were summoned in great haste to his assistance. Mary Beatrice has herself related the following particulars, connected with the indisposition of the little prince, and the strange negligence of her own personal attendance at that time. A few hours after the birth of my son, said she, the physicians prescribed something for him, which they said is good for babies. I don't remember now what it is. But this I know that by mistake or carelessness they repeated the dose, which made him so ill that every one thought he was dying. As I was in childbed, the king would not have awakened me with these tidings. But while every one was in a state of distraction, he retired into his oratory to offer that child who was so precious to him to God. I awoke in the meantime and asked for some broth, but saw no one near me, neither nurse nor attendant. I then called the only person who remained to take care of me was a chambermaid not more than one and twenty years old and thus i learned that which they wished to conceal from me the countess of sunderland was lady of the bed that night and it was her duty to watch beside me though the indisposition of the royal infant had only been caused by being overdosed with drugs which he would have been much better without the doctors inflicted the additional suffering upon him of making an issue of his tender little shoulder and giving him more physic while they withheld from him the natural aliment for which he pined one of the household when communicating to his friend in ireland the news of the birth of the prince of wales says it is a brave lusty boy and like to live and live he did in spite of all the blunders of his nurses the barbarities of his doctors and the malice of those who pretended that he died at the time this great nocturnal disturbance was raised in st james's palace on his account and that another child had been substituted to personate the veritable son of the king and queen on this new story those persons chose to rest who were ashamed of repeating the clumsy romance of the warming bed and pretending to believe that an imposition could be successfully practiced in the presence of six medical gentlemen three and twenty protestant ladies and gentlemen of high rank besides menial attendants, or that the Queen Dowager and all the Catholic nobility, would become accomplices in such a cheat. Dr. Hugh Chamberlain, the celebrated Whig practitioner, whom Burnett daringly quotes in support of his own inventions, when he heard that his name had been mentioned, as connected with these fictions, by the Lutheran minister at The Hague, in a conversation with the electress, Sophia of Hanover, wrote a manly honest letter to that princess, assuring her, that the Minister must have been misled by pamphlets current in England, pretending says he an account how far I had been therein engaged, to which several falsehoods were added. one of those papers was written by Mr. Burnet, son of the Bishop of Salisbury. Burnet himself wrote and printed at The Hague some of the coarse, indelicate libels that were so industriously circulated against the poor Queen on this occasion he subsequently embodied the substance of those lampoons in his history a remarkably easy method of obtaining a mass of fictitious evidence dr chamberlain expressly states that he was sent for early on the sunday morning by the queen but being out of town did not arrive till after the birth of the babe he declares that the duchess of monmouth had given him positive testimony of the reality of her majesty's alleged situation a few days before she having been present at her toilet. This relation, says he, being wholly occasioned by chance, and mentioned by one at that time disobliged by the court, I take to be genuine, without artifice or disguise, so that I never questioned it. Another circumstance in this case is, that my being a noted Whig, and signally oppressed by King James, they would never have hazarded such a secret as a suppositious child which had i been at home to follow the summons i must have come time enough to have discovered he says king james told him the queen came a fortnight sooner than she expected and this it will be remembered was the case when her last child the princess charlotte was born it was moreover scarcely two years since the princess anne herself had made a similar miscalculation and was brought to bed of a fine girl only two hours after her arrival at Windsor, having traveled from London the same day. During my attendance on the child, by his majesty's directions, continues Dr. Chamberlain, I had frequent discourse with the necessary woman, who, being in a mighty dread of popery and confiding in my reputed Whiggism, would often complain of the busy pragmaticalness of the Jesuits, who placed and displaced whom they pleased and for her part she expected a speedy remove for the jesuits could endure none but their own party such was our common entertainment but about a fortnight after the child was born a rumour having spread through the city that the child was spurious she cried alas will they not let the poor infant alone i am certain no such thing as the bringing a strange child in a warming pan could be practised without my seeing it attending constantly in and about the avenues of the chamber other remoter incidents might be alleged which being a smaller moment are forborne mary beatrice regardless of all the injurious libels that emanated from the dutch press had continued to keep up a friendly correspondence with the prince and princess of orange relating frankly perhaps they might think ostentatiously the particulars relating to her health to the princess up to the period of her confinement king james communicated the important event of the birth of the prince by whom his eldest daughter was apparently supplanted in her presumptive heirship of the crown to her consort in the following business-like note king james to the prince of orange june twelfth sixteen eighty eight the queen was god be thanked safely delivered of a son on sunday morning a little before ten She has been very well ever since, but the child was somewhat ill this last night of the wind, but is now, blessed be God, very well again, and like to have no returns of it, and is a very strong boy. Last night I received yours of the 18th. I expect every day to hear what the French fleet has done at Algiers. Tis late, and I have not time to say more, but that you should find me to be as kind to you as you can expect. For my son, the Prince of Orange. Four days later, James wrote to his daughter, Mary, the following brief bulletin of the health of the Queen and Prince of Wales. St. James's, June 16th, 1688. The Queen was somewhat feverish this afternoon. My son is, God be thanked, very well and feeds heartily and thrives very well. In Edinburgh, the news of the Queen's happy delivery and the birth of the Prince Stuart of Scotland, as they proudly styled, the young blooming flower of the odd royal tree was received with unfeigned joy the civic council records testify of the bonfires that blazed from the cannon gate to arthur's seat to make known the joyful tidings that a male heir was born to the ancient realm claret was quaffed at the expense of the crown and glasses broken by the loyal lieges ad libitum in drinking the health of their majesties and the prince stuart at the town cross amidst ringing of the bells and roaring salutes of the castle artillery and the lord provost received commission to go up to the court with two addresses from the good town one to the king the other to the queen to congratulate their majesties even the malcontent city of york drank deep potations to the health of the king queen and prince of wales and sent up a deceitful address of congratulation by the lord mayor and sheriffs In short, this event was celebrated with so many public demonstrations of rejoicing in all parts of the realm, that the king and queen flattered themselves with the belief that the nation shared in their rapture. Oxford, ever loyal, notwithstanding her present dispute with his majesty, poured forth a centenary of odes and heroic verses to celebrate the birth of a prince of Wales. The lofty numbers of Drydens, Britannia Redeviba, which appeared a few days after this event vindicated the honor of his office as poet laureate by throwing the efforts of all contemporary bards into the shade the following lines are selected as a specimen last solemn sabbath saw the church attend the paraclete in fiery pomp descend but when his wondrous octave rolled again he brought a royal infant in his train here dryden alludes to the festivals of pentecost and trinity sunday And proceeds to recall to the remembrance of his countrymen that edward the black prince was also born on trinity sunday which was considered a very auspicious circumstance he forgets not to compliment the royal parents on the mingled likeness which the infant was said to bear to both tis paradise to look on the fair frontispiece of nature's book if the first opening page so charms the sight think how the unfolding volume will delight see how the venerable infant lies in early pomp how through the mother's eyes the father's soul with an undaunted view looks out and takes our homage as his due the injurious reports that had been circulated by a faction insinuating the introduction of a spurious child are nobly repelled in these four lines born in broad daylight that the ungrateful rout may find no room for a remaining doubt Truth, which is light itself, doth darkness shun, and the true eaglet safely dares the sun. Our laureate's concluding apostrophe to the royal mother Mary of Modena must not be forgotten, though somewhat too adulatory for modern taste. But you, propitious queen, translated here from your mild skies to rule our rugged sphere, you who our native climate have bereft of all the virtues and the vices left, whom piety and beauty make their boast though beautiful is well in pious lost so lost as daylight is dissolved away and melts into the brightness of the day it is not to be supposed that all the poets of the age imitated the chivalry of glorious john and the bards of oxford in flinging votive garlands at the feet of mary beatrice to compliment her on having given a male heir to england the following sarcastic squib from the inedited political songs of the period is written in a different spirit on mary of modena addressed to james why dost thou wrong thy country shame thy life to please false priests and a designing wife a wife whose character has always been a fawning duchess and a saucy queen o nassau with thy promised succors, come and be to us like anthony to rome thy wife shall young Octavia's place supply, and those that have betrayed their country fly, unless the king, to prove the prince his own, shall to the lion's den present his son. Then, if the royal beasts do not destroy the infant, it is proved his own dear boy. A few days after the birth of his son, the following instance of clemency is recorded of King James. Nathaniel Hook, the late Duke of Monmouth's chaplain, who hath been skulking up and down without being able to obtain his pardon, threw himself lately at his majesty's feet, desiring his majesty's pardon, or to be speedily tried and executed, since now life itself, as well as the sense of his guilt, was wearisome to him, whereupon his majesty thought fit to extend his gracious pardon to him. James unfortunately in this, as in several other cases where he had exercised, the royal attribute of mercy calculated on the gratitude of the object of his grace he forgot that the christian law which enjoins forgiveness of our enemies does not recommend us to trust them and in a fatal hour he took nathaniel hook into his service who became one of the secret tools of william he followed his confiding master into exile as the hired pensionary of his foe he was in constant correspondence with the british ambassador at the court of france and growing gray in his iniquities continued even after the death of james the second to sell the counsels of his widowed queen and his son the news of the birth of a prince of wales was received with great pleasure at the court of france skelton the british ambassador thus describes the feelings of some of the ladies madame la dauphine is indisposed and in bed yet sent for me and said though she saw no man yet she could not forbear rejoicing with me upon account of the great news and expressed great joy and the little duke of burgundy whilst i was talking to madame la mariscal de la motte of his own accord told me that he would for joy order threescore fuses to be fired madame la mariscal intends in october next to give me something to be hung about the prince's neck which prevents the inconveniences which commonly attend the breeding teeth. The same has been used to these three young princes with good success. Monsieur made all the ladies of Saint Cloud drink the Prince of Wales' health on Thursday last. On the 17th of June, thanksgivings were offered up in all the churches for the happy delivery of the Queen and the birth of a Prince of Wales. As early as the twenty-ninth. The unconscious babe who was born to inherit his father's misfortunes not his crown was produced in all the pomp of purple pall and ermine to receive in person as he lay in lady Powis's lap addresses of congratulation from the lord mayor and corporation of london on the appearance of his royal highness in a troublesome world wherein he was destined to create further commotions the lord mayor and his civic brethren having presented an offering of their good will and affection in the shape of a purse of gold were admitted to the honor of kissing his tiny hand the prince is in good health writes one of the household and hath given audience to several foreign ministers among these were the envoy of his affectionate brother-in-law of orange and the king of denmark the lord mayor of york pursues our correspondent is come to town to kiss the prince's hand and to present him a purse of gold as the lord mayor of london did the queen is in public again and to name a day for the fireworks on the river mary beatrice was now a proud and joyful mother and her recovery was unusually rapid she received visits from ladies at the end of a fortnight and as early as the twenty eighth gave audience in her chamber to mynheer zulestein the dutch envoy extraordinary who was charged with the formal compliments of the prince and princess of orange on the birth of her son a few days afterwards her majesty wrote a letter to her royal stepdaughter mary a letter beginning with these words the first time i have taken pen in hand since i was brought to bed is this to write to my dear lemon The playful familiarity of addressing Her Highness of Orange by her pet name on this occasion sufficiently indicates the affectionate terms on which the consort of James the second had been accustomed to live with his eldest daughter. It is much to be regretted that one sentence should have only been preserved of a letter commencing in a tone so different from the epistolatory style of royal ladies. At the end of four weeks, Mary Beatrice left her retirement at St. James's Palace and returned to Whitehall. Lord Clarendon came to pay his duty to her, Monday, July 9th. He says, In the afternoon, I waited on the Queen, the first time I had seen her since she lay in. She was very gracious to me and asked me why I had not been there before and why I did not come oftener. The next day, the intended exhibition of the fireworks was postponed, and the following intimation of the cause was hinted by a person behind the scenes. The young prince is ill, but it is a secret. I think he will not hold. The foreign ministers, Zulestein and Grandmont, stayed to see the issue. The illness was so dangerous that the Princess Anne condescended to call her brother the Prince of Wales, when communicating to Mary the happy probability of his soon becoming an angel in heaven. He was destined to a few more trials on earth. The premature state audiences of the Prince of Wales had drawn so much ill-natured mockery on the innocent babe, in the form of vulgar and sometimes indelicate lampoons, that his offended mother went into a contrary extreme, equally injudicious. She would not allow him to be seen by any one but the nuncio, and forbade his attendants even to bring him to her before company the reason alleged was the prevalence of the smallpox. In the course of a week, the prince was so much amended that the promised pageant of the fireworks on the Thames was shown off to celebrate his birth and the queen's recovery. The exhibition was very splendid, consisting of several thousand fire balloons that were shot up in the air, and then, scattering into various figures, fell into the river. There were several stately pyramids and many statues and devices among which were two large figures representing loyalty and fecundity the emblem of the latter a hen and chickens was scarcely applicable to mary beatrice and her one feeble babe the only survivor of five ephemeral hopes the frequent reports of his death rendered it necessary to show the prince again in public and he was taken into the parks every day the lady marchioness of Powis, governant of the prince writes the Ellis Correspondent. Hath taught his royal highness a way to ask already. For a few days ago, his royal highness was brought to the king with a petition in his hand, desiring that two hundred hackney coaches may be added to the four hundred now licensed, but that the revenue for that said two hundred might be applied towards the feeding and breeding of foundling children thus we see that the first idea of establishing a foundling hospital in england emanated from the nursery of the consort of james the second she fondly thought no doubt to endear her infant to the people by connecting his name with a benevolent institution two silver medals were struck in commemoration of the birth of the son of james the second and mary deste one very large with the profile bust of the king on one side and the queen on the reverse it is a most noble work of art nothing can be more classical and graceful than the head and bust of the queen her hair is wreathed back in a grecian fillet from the brow and confined with strings of pearls a few rich tresses fall in long loose ringlets from the low braided knot behind it may serve for the head of a juno or roman empress the inscription is dei gratiae magne britanniae franciae et hiberniae regina the date sixteen eighty eight has been by some carelessness reversed and stands thus eighty eight ninety one king james is represented in a roman dress with long flowing hair and a wreath of laurel the other medal which is in honor of the royal infant represents him as a naval prince seated on a cushion on the seashore with ships in the distance two angels suspend the coronet of a prince of wales over his head And appear sounding notes of triumph with their trumpets on the reverse a shield with a label of three points charged with the arms of england scotland ireland and france is supported between four angels one bears the three plumed crest the other the arms of the prince of wales although the royal infant had been prayed for in his sister mary's chapel at the hague by the title of prince of wales and every mark of ceremonial respect had been paid on the occasion of his birth by william of orange james could not be deceived as to the inimical feelings with which his son was regarded in that court it was from the dutch press that all the coarse, revolting libels branding his birth as an imposition and throwing the most odious impositions on the queen had emanated one of william's agents a dutch burgomaster named weir had been detected at rome by the french ambassador cardinal de in a secret correspondent with the pope's secretary count cassoni with whom he communicated in the disguise of a vendor of artificial fruits one day he was by the cardinal's contrivance knocked down and robbed of his basket of wares the cardinal at first deceived by the exquisite beauty of the fruit thought his informers had been deceived and that cassoni patronized him as an artist only however the person by whom they had been captured cut them open and showed that they were filled with the seeds of the league of osberg and the projected revolution of england contained on slips of paper written in cipher and twisted round the wires which covered with green silk supported the fabric of lemons grapes figs etc the most important of these was the pope's promise to supply the emperor with large sums of money to be placed at the disposal of the prince of orange Detre's agent succeeded in picking the lock of cassoni's cabinet and found there a paper which had not yet been submitted to the pope implying that the prince of orange taking the command of the imperial forces was but a pretext to cover his designs on england and that he had entered into a conspiracy with the english to put to death the king and the child of which the queen was pregnant if a son, in order to place himself and the princess on the throne. The Cardinal lost no time in communicating this discovery to Lord Thomas Howard, who dispatched two couriers to his master with the news. James, at the time, appears only to have regarded it as a diplomatic trick of France, being well aware that it was part and parcel of the policy of his good cousin Louis, to embroil him with his son-in-law and natural ally, William. It was not till the truth of the first part of the intelligence was fatally confirmed that he allowed the latter to make an impression on his mind. His reply to William's deceitful congratulations on the birth of the Prince of Wales appears nevertheless indicative by its coldness and stern brevity of distrust, especially the significant concluding line. King James to the Prince of Orange, July 22nd, 1688 I have had yours by monsieur zoolestein who has as well as your letter assured me of the part you take on the birth of my son i will not have him return without writing to you by him to assure you i shall always be as kind to you as you can have with reason expect the queen unsuspicious as she was by nature and always ready to hope and believe the best of every one writes in a more friendly tone as if willing to give william credit for feeling all that his silvery-tongued envoy had expressed a sympathy for her maternal joy her letter is as follows mary of modena to the prince of orange st james's july twenty fourth sixteen eighty eight the compliments of mr zulestein made me from you and the letter he brought are so obliging that i know not which way to begin to give you thanks for it i hope he will help me to assure you that i am very sensible of it and that i desire nothing more than the continuance of your friendship which i am sure mine shall always one way deserve by being with all the sincerity imaginable truly yours m r from the princess of orange mary beatrice had expected letters more in accordance with the friendship that had subsisted between them in their early days when they lived together like two fond sisters rather than stepmother and daughter the affections of the italian princess were of an ardent character she had loved the princess mary with all her heart and she was piqued that mary did not express any tenderness towards her infant boy whom with the egotism of doting maternity she thought ought to be an object of interest to all the world if the queen had possessed that knowledge of the human heart which is one of the most important lessons royalty can learn she would not have wished to inquire too closely into the feelings of the wife of so ambitious a prince as william towards a brother who appeared born for the especial purpose of depriving her of the reversion of a threefold diadem perhaps mary in the first glow of natural affection had been accustomed to pet and caress the royal infants that had been born to her youthful stepmother while they lived together in st james's palace and had regarded them not as rivals but as beloved playthings and the queen could not have perceived that the case was widely different as regarded the long-delayed birth of an heir apparent to the crown. Mary Beatrice was not only so simple as to impute the coldness of the Princess of Orange to a diminution of affection towards herself, but to address some tender expostulations to her on the subject in a letter dated Windsor, July 31st, telling her she suspected that she had not so much kindness for her as she used to have. And the reason I have to think so, pursues the royal mother, is, for since I have begun, I must tell you all the truth, that since I have been brought to bed, you have never once in your letters to me taken the least notice of my son, no more than if he had never been born, only in that which Monsieur Zulestein brought, which I look upon as a compliment that you could not avoid, though I should not have taken it so, if even you had named him afterwards. If any real doubts had been felt by the Princess of Orange as to the claims of the infant to her sisterly affection, surely the Queen afforded her a decided opportunity for mentioning the suspicions that the Princess Anne had endeavored to insinuate as to his being the genuine offspring of their majesties. End of section 15